Is it possible to live a life of luxury that's also good for the planet? If we switch our focus from material goods and individual aspiration to shared resources that provide comfort and security, how would that benefit everyone and the environment? Across this series, I'm exploring the idea of luxury for all. How can we move the concept of luxury from exclusive and expensive to inclusive and accessible? And could raising our collective ambition for public luxury offer a better quality of life for all of us? I'm Natasha Locken. Welcome to this first series of Our Lives, Our Planet, a Global Action Plan podcast. In this podcast series, we're testing out the idea of luxury for all on six different areas of everyday life to see if we can redefine luxury and shift our aspirations. In this episode, we're looking at luxury jobs. What is the meaning of a good job? Is it about the salary or the purpose? What would it take to make good quality, secure jobs that contribute meaningfully to society the norm? I'll be speaking to two experts to find out. Later, we'll be joined by Becca Kirkpatrick, organiser and personal trainer. First, I spoke to Phoebe Hansen, climate and social activist and operations director at Force of Nature, a youth-led non-profit. I was keen to learn more about the kind of jobs that young people aspire to and how this connects to their activism. What does a luxury job look like for the next generation of workers? If we think about a mainstream media narrative, young people, I think, are increasingly the face of climate activism globally. So we can think of specific individuals, we can think of school strikes, but they're definitely kind of, you know, this idea that young people are kind of really angry, understandably, about climate change and really active in terms of trying to challenge it and tackle it. What do you know? And what, what have you seen in terms of that translating into what young people want to do with their lives, what their career aspirations are? We did recently conduct some research with an organisation called Word on the Curb, and we found that 85% of young people do want to work in either the climate, environmental justice or sustainability space. So the desire is definitely there. Um, and I know this even from chatting to like friends, peers. The research that we did with Word on the Curb exclusively looked into the barriers to access for young people from a diversity of backgrounds into the environmental sector. Um, And we found many of them. And the reason why we did that research is because we recognized at Force of Nature that we weren't doing good enough in including all the voices in the space that needed to be. So we wanted to like fundamentally understand why. So we did that research. Part of what we found is that there is a huge underrepresentation of the folks that we so desperately need in those decision-making rooms to make a fairer world. So many of the faces that we see in climate activism are white, like Greta Thunberg, and their work is absolutely amazing and only possible with the support of a community of an activist of colour. So people like Vanessa Nakate, Daphne Frias, Dominique Palmer. The whitewashing here in the like activist movement is also translated into the demographic makeup of the environmental like industry, like the green jobs industry. So we found through this research that only 7% of the UK climate movement were made up of people of colour, where 14% of the UK working population were people of colour, so half. We also found that Young people are viewing jobs in the environmental space as low-paid, self-sacrificial, and it particularly comes at a concern for folks from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds, 
those who might have big responsibilities outside of work, like care responsibilities, they're a refugee, they're the sole earner for their family. And so we're seeing so many young people care about their future and have a desire to work in this space. They care about their children's future and even like their parents' future, if we look at the timelines. But the work often feels exhausting. It can feel unimpactful and undervalued as well when it's not done right. And so although young people obviously want to work in this space, because we care about it so deeply as individuals and we want to translate that into like what we do for work, it is hard. It's not an easy space to be in. Yeah. And I'm aware that there's been other research on that. Um, SOS UK's race report found the same thing. Only 7% of environment professionals are people of colour, which is disappointing, but perhaps not surprising. Um, but it is a real problem for the sector. A kind of mindset shift that we've had at Force of Nature this year, as we've been doing all this research, um, trying to understand our barriers to access, is that we what we've like the mindset shift that we've had is that we fundamentally can't be a successful organization without having a diversity of experience and skills within the organization. So that applies to not just our organization, but because we are trying to support the climate crisis slash mitigate the climate crisis, like we cannot be truly successful unless we have that diversity of voices within the climate movement in general. And I think that that's where we are falling down. We're seeing it as a tick box rather than a, no, this is mission critical. We can't do this without that. And this is an issue in terms of the pipeline of talent. Why do you think the environment sector in particular may not be attractive to young people more specifically? In order for us to create systemic change, we need our green jobs and our activism to genuinely invite challenge and change. And young people are still so often left out of decision-making rooms where we can actually make that change. Just yesterday, I was talking to my friend, uh, my housemate, and his workplace, a multi-billion dollar company, are wanting to hire new graduates for sustainability jobs. And we had a little conversation about this and it made me wonder, are they actually looking for a diversity of people who can meaningfully impact change in the sustainability space? Or are they looking for someone that neatly fits into the corporate box that is going to leave them unchallenged? Do they actually have the agency and the decision-making power to, to challenge the status quo in that organization? Or are you looking exclusively for university graduates who are amazing, but they also have the privilege to experience life in one way? Or are you looking for university graduates alongside people that might have failed their English GCSE? And so I, I think that we keep seeing bureaucracy put in the way of actually doing the work that we want to and having like attractive green jobs. Does someone actually need an English GCSE or equivalent to tell you how the climate crisis is affecting their life and to help you problem solve how to make a more just world? Or are we just trying to fit everybody into these neat little boxes within a system that we are ultimately trying to disrupt? So there's like this cognitive dissonance there. I think that like to do with that as well is was needing to change our expectation around green jobs. So burnout is something that we so often see in this sector, even with the best intentions. So at Force of Nature, we try everything to avoid it. We've implemented the four-day work week. We try to fairly compensate people, like all of these things. But we are also still experiencing burnout in the organization. Young people work especially hard in this space because obviously our output of work is so deeply rooted to our love and despair for our future. 
But our, although our work is often surrounded by that joy and that community, there's still this like isolating feeling that you're on your own and that you have to do everything and be everything. It's like we radically need to change the way that we think about green jobs that like, it's not necessarily a green job. It's like us trying to build a better world. And I think that that's where we need to see it different. Like we're not trying to fit people back into these little corporate boxes and abide by the systems that we've created. We're like literally trying to disrupt them. So we should be seeing these jobs as, as kind of like the um, ambassadors for that world. That's a really, really interesting idea. And I really like that. The idea that sort of almost you would go in, I'm thinking about your friend who kind of is in a corporation. And, and I think that's a great example in the corporate world. You have sustainability roles and they are in a box, aren't they? They're sort of here in the corporations here. And they're just trying to, but the point is, is that those roles, yeah, they're ambassador roles and the role of them is agents of change, really trying to change the whole organisation. Another agent of change in our workplaces are unions. I spoke to Becca Kirkpatrick, a personal trainer and self-professed lifelong union geek with a background in union and community organising. I wanted to find out how much interest there is within the union movement in the broader social and environmental impacts of jobs. I was part of the Trades Council here in Birmingham and as a branch um, activist, I was going to lots of union conferences and things. And these kind of places, you will hear a lot of conversations that tell you that these issues are very much at the forefront of active union members' interests. What can affect how much unions are able to make these considerations a priority is the very restrictive laws that are imposed on trade unions about what consists of a legal dispute. So employers are very keen to try and take unions to court to prove that one way they can try and stop a union from being effective is to prove that their dispute doesn't have like a legal basis. And what counts as legal is quite a narrow set of conditions they're allowed to discuss, so just terms and conditions at the workplace. So what you often find is that although the concerns are much wider and much more about the impact on society, workers will just have to talk about these alongside, perhaps in their conversations around disputes, in materials they put out. Some of the things that actually inspired me most to first get involved with unions are some really classic examples of where action was taken around social and environmental impact. So a really great example that I would love um, people to check out is the Builders and Labourers Federation in New South Wales in Australia. And um, during the 70s, they held a series, I think 56 in total, of what was known as the Green Bands and the what the union did, they were a construction union and they would actually decide that certain projects they would refuse to work on because of the environmental impact and this would be like at the request of residence groups that were trying to protect an area, they would come to the union and request a Green Ban and that was uh, a really inspiring example of that. And then another absolutely invigorating example you do often quite see in for example wartime is you may see logistics workers or dock workers at the ports refusing to perhaps handle munitions that are coming from a war zone and we definitely saw train drivers doing that during the Iraq war that was very inspiring to me that was around the time that I was getting involved in unions 
And then another fantastic example I'd love to recommend people check out again. This is one of my favorite movies. It's called Nae Passaran, N-A-E Passaran. And it's the story of some Rolls-Royce workers in East Kilbride in Scotland, um, again in the 70s. And they refused to work on parts from the Chilean Air Force that were coming from the Pinochet regime. And that just, to me, just spoke so strongly of how workers in the workplace are able to not only act on their own interests, but actually stop things happening when there's that broader impact. So that's always been there. And we still see it now. We do see it. um, The Chicago Teachers Union are absolutely fantastic at talking about the social impact of their work as teachers. And what that means is when they take action in their city, they're absolutely flooding the streets with a sea of red T-shirts. Maybe say half of them are teachers, but half of them are actually parents and children that they teach who are standing completely side by side with them, agreeing with their demands. The demands are about classroom sizes and all this kind of stuff and quality of life. And they're completely managing to counteract that. What you sometimes see where workers taking action, the employer or the media will try and try and portray as the workers being selfish. And this is just showing it's exactly not that at all. There's very much benefits to service users when the workers take action. NHS often the workers would like to take action about cuts to services, about staffing numbers. They're not able to do that. They have to limit it to their own terms and conditions, but they will definitely talk about that. We're seeing some great messaging from the RMT about the closure of ticket offices and how that impacts passenger safety. And the CWU as well with the Royal Mail workers, they just make lots and lots of stories about the social benefit of the post people doing their rounds and being a huge part of the community. So it's great to see that messaging coming through. I think the last year or so has seen such an upswell of support for the unions um, in tandem with the rise in action. And that messaging has just been very, very effective recently. Yeah, it's interesting to reflect on. I was struck by the fact that a lot of examples that you drew on were from the 70s, mm-hmm. which was a long time ago now. And I was thinking as you were talking about what changed and, you know, people familiar with the history of Britain will understand that the 80s were not a great time for the unions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Understatement. But then, yeah, you're right. Kind of thinking about the last couple of years and how it's coming back around. Um, so I'm relatively new to the environmental sector. I've been working at Global Action Plan for a year and a half. Before then, I worked in a sort of related field, but not in the environmental sector. And I think before that point, if you'd asked me about what a green job was, I think, yes, I'd probably have thought of some sort of environmental campaigning. Mm-hmm. Or I'd probably have thought about, I don't know, a solar panel engineer or a heat pump installer or something yeah. like that. And something very, very green or eco or sustainable is going to be in the title. It's going to be first line of the job description. Mm-hmm. Is that what a green job is? Can can other jobs be green jobs? And would that make them luxury jobs? I mean, I feel like all jobs should be green jobs because I feel like something that we don't do very well as a system is enable people to show up to their work as a full human, as a fully formed human with their own needs, their own requirements, their own like vision for the future, And so I feel like we've lost that in our systems where we are just like, for example, we've just got one thing on the mind and that one thing is money. Whereas if we were all putting that same energy into making like a fairer, more sustainable world, then 
every every job would be a green job. And obviously, like you've got to recognize the intersectionality of it, like people working in racial equity, gender equity. They're also, I suppose the word green is like misleading, but they're also working towards this like fairer world. These are all symptoms of like one broken system. So I mean, my ideal scenario is that we wouldn't have for-profit companies, that every single organization would be a non-profit company. And that's taken away this idea that a non-profit company is someone that doesn't pay fair wages, is understaffed, like all these things. It's like, no, the new normal becomes a non-profit organization where actually every single organization isn't working to create money for some random person hoarding that wealth. They're working to create a fair and equitable world for everybody. So that would be my ideal scenario. I think there is, uh, there's like, there is one vision, as you say, of what a climate activist looks like. And I think that word activist puts people off, but there isn't one way to be an activist. The environmental sector also, as I say, like the other intersectionalities around it need people with a wealth of different experiences and skills in order to be truly successful. And so we need the young people on the streets protesting. And that's usually what people think of as an activist. We also need the artists creating climate art and media. We need indigenous people continuing to understand and protect their ecosystems and our ecosystems. We need the accountants of the world in grant giving, giving money to organizations doing the work. So we need people in all different jobs. We need it to kind of be the DNA of every single job is just creating a fairer world. And surely when you put it that simply, like everybody wants that. Just thinking about some of the examples you've mentioned of workers taking action at the moment. You've got teachers, healthcare workers, train drivers, postal workers. And, you know, we're, we're talking about a new idea of a luxury job. So what do kids grow up aspiring to be, aspiring to do? And that's partly about what's considered valuable work. How, how much unions involved in that conversation? And how can they help define what work is valued? Yeah, I've definitely, in my experience with Unison, there was always a huge push in talking about the importance of the public services that members are providing and the kind of richness of those jobs where, you know, they might be looked down on, but actually talking about this is what we do and this is why it's so important to society. We've got this bit of an upside down situation where, some of the most essential jobs are the hardest and the lowest paid jobs. This probably goes to a bit of a higher level than what unions alone could achieve, given the like official kind of restrictions on what is a legal dispute. But my understanding of the situation is that because we don't have an entitlement, like a right to housing and a right to food provision, and free services, our services and our utilities are run on a profit basis and the prices of those are going up. People are having to work extremely long hours at work that really, you know, even working 10, 15 hours a week should be a cap for doing certain types of work because they're just so emotionally and physically draining. So if we had a situation where you had some sort of guaranteed living standards that every person was entitled to, as something that society said, yes, this is a bare minimum, decent living standard that will be provided as a right for all. No one's going to go hungry. Everyone has a right to housing. Then there wouldn't be this desperation for us to have to 
you know, we could break some of these jobs down, share them out, make them into shorter working week. You know, you're just perhaps doing that job for two and a half days a week rather than five plus days a week. That would be a world where if people had more choice and just breathing space to consider what they'd like to do with their life as, as a type of work, then the employers would actually have to pay what the job is worth. So the most difficult, the most emotionally challenging and, yeah, tiring work would need to, you know, the market would then do its job and suddenly that job would need to be paid a lot, lot more to attract people into it. So that's my way of looking at it. And I don't think that's something unions alone could mm. lead us to that transformation. But I know there's a few steps to get there, but that, that would be uh, my way of how we reward the work that is the most important to the degree that it should be rewarded and that we also share it in a way that the workers aren't, you know, becoming ill themselves with the stress of the the volume of work they have to do just to exist. I think that's a fantastic vision and it chimes with actually sort of things that we've spoken about on other episodes of the podcast, actually, where it's the fact that people feel they have no choice um, yeah. in the matter and that, that, and yeah. then that is sort of just pushing people into positions where, yeah, and so therefore it's kind of pushing standards and quality lower because people feel kind of boxed in. Yeah. The wages are low, that's right. And people know that if they if they don't accept whatever work, whatever form of work, whether they're suited to it or not, whatever low pay, minimal pay is being offered, then they also know there's not any kind of safety net guaranteed provision of housing, food, etc. So they could, you know, we could just fall into real difficulties if we just don't do what we're told, basically. Mm. There's no way to run a society. I feel like even amongst like my friends, my peers, of people my age, I can't speak for anybody else, but people my age, I've kind of got three types of friends. One is the corporate person who they their priority in life is to earn the money to have a nice life kind of like outside of work and be able to pay for things, go on trips, go to gigs, things like that. There's people like me that work in the nonprofit space that are feeling fulfilled but are very much underpaid. And then there's people in the public sector that are kind of like similar to that, where they're undervalued, underpaid, overworked. But like, imagine a world where we didn't have that trade-off and there wasn't the like, oh, should I go and work in a corporate space? Like I've thought about it before. I'm like, if I took my skill set to a corporate space, I could be earning so much more money. And I'm like, well, at this point in my life, I can take that sacrifice. I'm privileged enough to take that sacrifice and do something that fulfills me that's got a better work-life balance but I don't know if in 10 years time I'm going to be able to do that if I'm, my priorities will have changed and I'll need to be like okay now I need to actually be getting some more money for my family or whatever but like imagine if there wasn't that trade-off imagine if we were all if we all just had access to a fair livable wage we also felt fulfilled in the work that we did we weren't just making money for like a corporate giant, a typical like white man sat in a room. We were all just contributing to society in a way. And I think that like when you talk about these things outside of our echo chambers, people hear these conversations and immediately get scared because they, they hear, they don't hear an abundance. They hear like, like a minimization, like a fear, like a taking away, but like that's not the purpose. And so there's words, whenever people hear anyone talk about, things that are for the good of community, they associate immediately with communism, especially people like my family, my parents. But there is also, and there's capitalism, but there's also, in my opinion, this nice 
in between where we do all care for each other and we also have the the money that we need in order to trade and all these kind of things and that just is socialism and i think that that is something that is just completely forgotten about by people we always think okay what are the two opposite ends of the spectrum that we feel like can be successful but we can build a new system and like we don't have to abide we don't even have to call it anything we can just make a world that we want to live in right this is a huge topic and i feel like we've just scratched the surface both my guests hit the nail on the head that those doing the most essential jobs in our society are undervalued underpaid and overworked Changing what work we aspire to is about changing why we work as much as anything else. A truly luxury job would provide a decent standard of living, decent working conditions and decent job satisfaction by making a meaningful contribution to our communities and our environment. If every job were a luxury job, we would all be working for a better future. I'd like to thank our guests, Phoebe Hansen, Operations Director at Force of Nature, and Becca Kirkpatrick, organiser and personal trainer. If you like this episode, please do subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts and like, comment and share the programme. You can find notes and links for the show on our website at globalactionplan.org.uk forward slash podcast and you can get in touch with us by email at podcast at globalactionplan.org.uk or send us a voice note to 020 4534-3913. Our Lives, Our Planet is a Global Action Plan podcast presented by me, Natasha Locken, and produced by Claire McCowan.